Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Good morning, family, friends, neighbors, countrymen, guests. Good to see everybody. Hey, we are uh, continuing today. What for me has really been... I've, I've really enjoyed Genesis so far. I don't know about you guys, but it's been uh, pretty fascinating for, for me uh, to, to study a fresh, my favorite book of the Bible, um, and so I, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Today, we're going to uh, spend the bulk of our time in Genesis chapter 15. If you want to go ahead and turn there, Genesis chapter 15, but it's going to take us a little bit. You guys uh, probably know by now that I'm prone to long introductions, so... It's going to take us a while to get to the passage, but I think we'll be glad that we take this route. So since it's going to take us a while to get there, I'm going to give you my outline in advance. And all the note takers said, amen, amen, right? So so here's the outline in advance. Uh, Today we're going to learn that the presence of God is powerful. And the promise of God is personal. And because of Jesus, you can know the powerful and personal God as Father. Pretty straightforward, but that's the gospel, right? That's the gospel. We're going to be talking a lot about the gospel today. Uh, So first, as you see in the outline, we're going to talk about the presence of God being powerful. You ever thought about that? You know, a a recurring thought that I have um, when I gather with the church family on Sundays is I always, I don't know why, but in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking about people who aren't followers of Jesus that are here, maybe people who are followers of Jesus but didn't grow up in a church background or didn't grow up in a church background like this. Um, and I, for some reason, I always think how weird it might seem to them that they are looking around at, at Christians or maybe sitting among Christians who are singing their hearts out to a God that they cannot see. If you grew up in church, you may not realize how weird that is. It's weird. In our culture today, it's a, it's a weird thing. And so for uh, folks like that, it, it may understandably seem pretty odd um, to them. It maybe even would seem there might be a, a, a component of beauty about it. There's a, there's a unity, and you can kind of feel the, the, the family here. That, that might be, in some ways, beautiful to people. That might be a mystery, uh, a component of mystery in the lyrics that, and these are sort of big, profound, in scope things that we're talking about, and um, I don't quite fully get those things, but they're kind of real and majestic and beautiful, but I don't quite understand really what's being talked about. Uh, Maybe even they might feel or you might feel a certain sense of of presence here that makes you maybe a little uncomfortable. Um, Maybe that's that's some of us here today. Uh, The percentages, uh, likelihood, ratios would say that there's several of us here that maybe feel those things or experience those things. 
You know, the Bible says uh, a a phrase that I don't think I've ever, ever fully comprehended, but it says that God inhabits the praises of his people. I don't think I fully understand what all that means, but I think at least a part of it means that when we worship God, that the Lord draws near to us relationally, right? That he is somehow, we can feel his presence more when we worship him. He makes himself... uh, uh, man, more um, available. He feels more available to us, uh, is what I should say. So when we're around the people of God, then worshiping God, the presence of hear this: the presence of God Himself through His Spirit is in some ways more palpable to us. We can feel the presence of God, and so that strange feeling for the person who maybe doesn't quite know God or is not a follower of Jesus, or didn't grow up in an environment like that, that strange feeling might be because of a more discernible presence of the God that they don't know. So it, it's, a, it's an unusual, unfamiliar sort of, sort of thing, sort of presence. Uh, so the question is, why? If God is who... Christians think God is, and who we as a church believe God to be, why would we feel strange around God? Why would we feel this sort of uh, oddness around God? There's a verse in the Bible's last book. We're studying the first book in Genesis. I want to go to the last book real quick that I think explains why we feel that strange, maybe even unsettling feeling around God. It's it's in Revelation chapter 4. You don't have to flip there. It's coming up on the screen. And John um, is having an apocalyptic vision of the throne room of God. And part of the amazing scene that he sees begins in verse 6, and it says this, And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, and here's the phrase, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That word holy literally means set apart. So in God's case, it means that God is totally unique. There is nothing else quite like God. And so in some ways, they're saying perpetually, these four beasts, how different, how different, how unusual, how unusual is God Almighty. There's nothing like God. And so it can and should, seeing something so unusual in this apocalyptic vision by John, would understandably make us feel uneasy in the presence of something completely different. It reminds me of a scene, uh, you guys know I love C.S. Lewis, but it reminds me of a scene in The Lion, the the Witch, and the Wardrobe um, where... uh, Lucy, a character in there, is asking about Aslan, 
being a lion. And she says, so he isn't safe? And the beaver replies, of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He isn't safe, but he is good. And what C.S. Lewis is describing there uh, for you guys, uh, I'm sorry when I get in a pulpit, I'm a nerd. He's describing a thing called the numinous. He, he calls it the numinous. That word's not coming up. It's not really important what the word is. But the numinous is describing something wholly other, completely different than is experienced, unusual than what is experienced in our ordinary, everyday life. And that thing, that sense that it, that it gives kind of sets on us and in us a posture of silence when we encounter something like that. It creates in us silence, and we get a sense of its overwhelming power. Yet in spite of our appropriate fear of that thing, we somehow feel drawn to the numinous, to that thing that is so different and so other. Uh, in one of his other books called The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis describes the numinous like this. It should be coming up on the screen. Check it out. He says, suppose you were told there was a tiger in the next room. You would know that you were in danger and would probably feel fear. But if you were told there's a ghost in the next room and you believed it, you would feel indeed what is often called fear, but of a different kind. It would not be based on the knowledge of danger, for no one is primarily afraid of what a ghost may do to him, but of the mere fact that it is a ghost. It is uncanny rather than dangerous. And the special kind of fear it excites may be called dread. With the uncanny, one has reached the fringes of the numinous. Now suppose that you were told simply there is a mighty spirit in the room and believed it. Your feelings would then be even less like mere fear of danger, but the disturbance would be profound. You would feel wonder and a certain shrinking, a sense of inadequacy to cope with such a visitant and of prostration before it. This feeling may be described as awe and the object which excites it as the numinous. So that's a sense of what it's like to encounter God, but times infinity because God is truly unique. God is only the truly thing that is ever truly other. So this brings us finally to our text today in Genesis. Um, because in our text, we're going to see a guy named Abram, a regular old dude, called by God. We're going to see Abram encounter the real God who's actually there. And our prayer is as a church today that you'll encounter God too. So in, we'll be in chapter 15, but let's start in chapter 14 and kind of set the stage. I just want to run over it very quickly. Chapter 14 is the battle of nine kings. It's a group of four kings versus a group of five kings. The group of four kings win. Uh, and as part of that battle, Lot uh, Abram's nephew, who we've been learning about, was taken captive, and Abram goes to rescue him, and he does. And then on the way back, they meet a very significant guy in a very significant place. Let's read Genesis 14, 17 through 24 together to pick up. 
After his return from the defeat of Kedarlaomer, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eskel and Mamre take their share. So here we read that a person who is both king of Salem, which means peace, it literally means king of peace, and he's a priest of the Most High God named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek's not really a name, it's a title. Melch means king, Zedek means righteousness. So this person is the king of peace and the king of righteousness. Um, It takes place at the base of Mount Moriah, which if you remember back to our first message in this series, was the mountain range. It's the same place where Abram, whose name would later be changed to Abraham, would be uh, tested to see if he would offer his son Isaac as sacrifice. And it is the same place where the God who stopped Abraham from doing that provided a ram. And Abram said, the Lord will provide at this place. And and, uh, years after that, Abram saw, now Abraham saw that God would indeed provide the lamb because Jesus himself was sacrificed on our behalf on that very spot. So that's where this encounter is taking place. But who is this guy, Melchizedek? Again, he's a priest of the Most High God. He received Abram's tithes and administered bread and wine to Abram. Psalm 110 and three chapters in the book of Hebrews relate this person to Jesus himself. So, um, and you'll get what I mean by relate to uh, in just a minute. Hebrews chapter 7. If you want to turn there, go ahead and do that. Um, The main point that we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to read 1 through 21. Obviously, it's going to give us insight on Melchizedek, but it's going to give us details on the gospel. It's going to expound the gospel message for us. Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to read a lot of scripture today. I hope that's okay. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him and said to Abraham, said to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, 
who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside, here's the gospel, because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such with an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So how are we to interpret that? Who is this person, Melchizedek? Many scholars see Melchizedek as a sort of pre-incarnate God the Son. In other words, that this is God the Son showing up in human earthly bodily form before he permanently added humanity to his divinity, being born as Jesus of Nazareth. Other scholars believe that this is a historic figure who is in a way prefiguring Jesus. He's a a type looking forward to a shadow of what, foreshadowing of what was to come in Jesus. All Bible-believing scholars believe that this man, Melchizedek, was at least that, right? A foreshadowing of Jesus. Now, my personal view especially based on what Melchizedek uh, is said about Melchizedek in Psalm 110 and, and in Hebrews, is I believe that Abram met with the Messiah in advance. That's, that's my view, and, and, and I want to show you why I hold that. Um, note that Melchizedek is a king and priest. Jesus is the only king and priest that's legitimate. Uh, in fact, it was against God's law for a king to hold the priestly office. Remember, this is what got Israel's first king in big trouble. Um, He tried to hold the office of priest at the same time and and was condemned by the Lord for it. Yet here, Melchizedek is seen as so righteous that Abram bows down in honor to him. So he's not in sin being both king and priest. Uh, We're told that he is without beginning or end. We're told that he's greater than Abraham, the father of the faith. Hebrews told us that all the Old Testament prophets were in a way 
paying their tithes to this guy, Melchizedek. Um, so that's why I believe, uh, among the reasons why I believe that this guy, Melchizedek, is, was a, um, an Old Testament visitation of God the Son. So let's get back to the action here, okay? Uh, God promised uh, to Abram that God would bring the Savior through Abram's lineage. And, and listen, I won't be great about distinguishing Abram and Abraham. I'll get them mixed up. His name's not been changed yet. But if I say Abraham and Abram, I'm talking about the same dude, okay? All right. Um, so um, either there's what we have here with Melchizedek is a member of the Trinity, that would eventually be born, or a man pointing to the God-man, Jesus the Savior. Either one, the point is the Savior. The point of, of these passages, regardless of which side you interpret them on, is the Savior and the gospel, the promised Savior. Um, that's what the whole commentary on this passage from Hebrews was about, talking about the gospel. So let me show you something, uh, what I believe is, is pretty amazing. Not only is the presence of God powerful, but the promise of God, the gospel, is personal. Look at uh, Genesis chapter 15, brings us to our main text for today. We're going to see that God is going to renew this covenant that we keep talking about that he's made with Abram. And I want want you to see that it's God the Son himself, the fulfiller of the covenant, who is renewing this covenant. With Abram. Check it out. Genesis 15, 1 through 5. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. So let's kind of walk through this text a little bit. What's the context? Abram is having a what? He is in a crisis indeed. Crisis of faith, is he not? Right? What's Abram experiencing right now? A vision. Correct? Abram is having a vision. So this is not just something that Abram hears. This is something that Abram sees. And what does the text say that Abram sees? For the answer to that, look at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. What does it mean for the word of the Lord to come in a vision? Is is Abram seeing letters in the sky? I think the answer to that is in verse 5 that we read. And he brought Abram outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. The the word of the Lord is a he. This person, this is a a person that Abram is in the presence of, and Abram is seeing this person in a vision. Again, I think this hymn 
is again what is referred to in verse 4, or who is referred to in verse 4, the word of the Lord came to Abram. So the regular rules of grammar tells us that the he in verse 5 is the word of the Lord. The he that took Abram outside to show him the stars of the heavens is the word of the Lord. Abram is being visited by the word of God. Can we go real quick to John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He comes after me, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. In fact, I would tell you today that it is the word of God that is revealing God to Abram, right? Just as John says. And so check this out. The word of God is telling Abram in sort of code about the fulfillment of the promise that he actually is. Jesus himself will be the fulfillment of this promise. Remember, way back when we were looking at the first few chapters of Genesis, we saw sort of uh, what's called like the, the, the proto-evangelion. It's a, it's a pre-evangelism. Remember Genesis chapter 3, that um, a descendant of Eve will crush the serpent's head, and the serpent will bruise his heel. Remember that. Remember that. And so now, from that time to Abram was, guess how many years? About 2,000. Abram, being a follower of Yahweh God, knew that that promise had been promised and promised and promised for 2,000 years. And here is that, um, a, a greater insight on that promise. Abram is not just a seed of the woman. It's going to be one of your descendants. It's coming from your family, Abram. I'm going to provide a piece of land. From them, And it's not going to be a member of your household, Abram. It's going to be somebody from your gene line. It's your literal descendant, Abram. And hear the word of God, who will later be in that lineage, is saying, in, in essence, I'm coming. I'm coming. The last great high priest that we read about in Hebrews is revealing himself here. So, This vision was given to Abram how many years again after the first promise? 2,000. 2,000 years after Abram, Jesus, the promise was fulfilled. Guess how long it's been since Jesus fulfilled the promise? About 2,000 years. Are we still waiting on a promise from Jesus? There's one more promise, isn't there? What's that promise? He'll return. He'll return. If he was good for his first promise, 
and renewed it 2,000 years in a covenant to Abram. And was good for his second promise that he would indeed be born as a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and die for our sins. Even though it's been 2,000 years and people say, man, you Christians have been talking about that stuff forever. Jesus is not returning. Wake up. Second Peter told us he's not slow concerning his promise, but he's patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord's not slow. He's got a, his timing's perfect. And just because it's been 2,000 years, hold on. He's good for his word. He's proven it, proven it, proven it throughout history. He's the God of history. He's the God of the present. And he's the God of the future. And notice that um, in spite of how things look, Gerda said that Abram was in a crisis. Indeed, he is. In spite of how things look, Abram is in a crisis of faith. Can I really trust God? So what does God, the word of God, do? He takes Abram outside and he says, your descendants, Abram, I know that you and your wife have been barren, but I'm telling you, your descendants are going to be so numerous. Let's walk outside. In the night sky, undimmed by modern lights, he looks at the Milky Way, like you see, kind of see it on your screen, millions and millions of stars, and the Word of God who created those stars says to Abram, take a look at those. Can you number them? Your descendants are going to be that numerous. You won't be able to number them either. And so in the midst of Abram's crisis, God that he cannot make sense of, Abram cannot make sense of what's going on. I got this promise from God. My life sure doesn't look like that promise. I don't get it. Abram doesn't get it. And so God points him to something else he doesn't get, something else he can't possibly drink in. Look at the stars of heaven, Abram. Can you comprehend those? Nope. The word of God says, Abram, Nothing was made without me. All things were made through me, Abram. I'm showing you something you can't possibly grasp to show you that I'm with you in this present circumstance that you can't possibly grasp. And so in our lives that, doesn't, that don't make sense, our confusing circumstance, I think there's something that God wants us to see there. When, it, when things don't make sense, what does make sense to do when things don't make sense is to trust God. When things don't make sense, when I don't know what's going on, I do know God. And he is altogether trustworthy. That's what the word of God is showing to Abram here. Again, um, let, me, let me just say one other little thing that I, I noticed uh, when we look at the stars, something that looking at God's creation, particularly in that way, should remind us um, is that we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves and that we don't deserve to be in charge of our own lives. We've seen Abram getting in trouble by forgetting that fact already, have we not? Abram knows the promise, but he tries to take things in his own hands because he's not trusting God at the moment. Right? We've seen Abram get in trouble. I think God wants to show us when we look at the stars to remember we didn't make them. He says, Abram, you didn't make these. He's telling us, you didn't make these. Um, in his book, Recapture the Wonder, another one of my, my dudes, Ravi Zacharias, points to a historical fact that I think would help, uh, help us today. He says that President Theodore Roosevelt had a routine habit 
almost a ritual. Every now and then, along with the naturalist William Beebe, he would step outside at dark, look into the night sky, find a faint spot of light at the lower left-hand corner of Pegasus, and one of them would recite, This is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way galaxy. It is one of a hundred million galaxies. It is 750,000 light years away. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our own sun. There would be a pause, and then Roosevelt would grin and say, Now, I think we feel small enough. I think we feel small enough. So once again, uh, as we learned in our kingdom man study, and we've learned in men's night, and we've been talking about in here on Sundays, there's really only room for one God, and we are not him. Um, so we can trust, though, we can trust the real God who's actually there in our circumstances that don't make sense. Or uh, we can reject him and trust something that's styled after our own desires, which really ends up in self-trust, which is really self-worship. Um, so only Yahweh is God. The God of the Bible is the only God who's really there. Only Yahweh is the creator of heaven and earth. And only Yahweh deserves our ultimate worship and trust. So it's within, though, this grand, huge, sweeping, intimidating view of God that God personally, intimately draws near to Abram, says, Abram, let's walk outside. He didn't send a, he's not some distant, abstract deity that you can't know. God personally comes to Abram and says, Abram, will you, can, will you walk with me? Let's, let's go outside and take a look at something that I've made. I want to show you something, Abram. It's a very personal thing. It's a personal and loving, trusting relationship that God would call you to in light of how grand he is. He wants you to know him as you. Individually, God wants you to know him individually. And because of Jesus, our final point, because of Jesus, you really can know the powerful and personal God as Father. You really can. You really can. In verse 6, back in Genesis chapter 15, it says that, And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Hear that again. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted that to Abram as righteousness. That is great news. That is the good news we call the gospel. Um, this is, it's, it's incredible. God sovereignly and graciously revealed himself to Abram. Abram believed in the revelation that God had given him. And by grace, through faith, God then accounted that to Abram as righteousness. People, do you need to be made righteous? I need to be made righteous. This is how it happens. This 
We've, we've already seen that Abram is not a righteous man, is he? Nope. This is not earned righteousness. This is accounted right. And we'll see later, Abram's still not a great guy. <laughs> but he is accounted as righteous because of his trust in the promise of God. The book of Galatians, if you want to do a, a, a cross-reference later and study the book of Galatians, it makes it clear that the gospel was preached to Abram in advance. Abram responded to the gospel. Abram believed the gospel. Righteousness comes from God by grace alone and through faith alone. And Moses, the author of Genesis, is teaching us that Abram's faith was accredited to him. Abram didn't have faith of his own, or, uh, righteousness of his own. Neither do you. Neither do I. We need righteousness accredited to us. But think about how amazing that is. Think about the implications for us personally. Again, God, the creator of heaven and earth, appeared to a sinful, regular old Chaldean man. And he brings him knowledge of God himself. And he says he wants to reward him with a great inheritance. And then as we'll see next week, when God makes a promise, Abram bows in trust to the Lord. We'll see that God then makes a covenant with Abram. That's how it works, people. God graciously shows us himself. If you're here today or you're hearing this or you're watching it on YouTube or whatever, it is not by mistake. God is showing him, showing you himself in a book that he has written thousands of years ago that is proving to be true and true and true over and over again. You really can know God. And in spite of our indifference toward God, in spite of our hostility toward God, while we still have our weapons against God in our hands, he graciously comes to us, and this is how he deals with us. He reveals himself to us. If we respond in faith, he makes an unbreakable, unilateral covenant with us. And in two weeks, when we pick back up um, after our celebration of, of our three years, we'll take a look at that covenant where God, um, God does the work and shows Abram that he means business. And it's going to be a work of the Lord, not based on Abram's righteousness or power, but on the Lord's righteousness and the Lord's power. But I want to close by going back to Hebrews 7 and pick up in that passage where we left off because I think it really uh, displays this gospel that was preached in advance to Abram really well. Remember that verses 1 through 21 say that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 22 picks up saying this, this, that is being a priest after the order of Melchizedek, makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Take note of that. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, 
innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The author of Hebrews is making a point that all these other priests died and stayed dead. What is the wages of sin? It's death. That's why these other priests died. All these other priests needed a priest because they had their own sin. They had their own sin. Somebody else or something else had to make atonement for them because they were sinners too. Only Jesus, hear me, only Jesus can make atonement for everybody else because he's the only one without sin. He's the only one. I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a guy uh, who's, I, I believe that the Lord is hunting him down. <laughs> and this guy is, um, is seeking the Lord. And we had a, a, a really great conversation. And he kind of realized as we were talking that without the perfect life and sinless atonement by Jesus, there's no hope ever for anyone um, to have their sins forgiven. He's, his words to me, he said, you know what? If it wasn't for Jesus being the high priest, offering the ultimate sacrifice, he said, he said these, these are his words, otherwise it would just be an endless loop. And I agreed. I said, in that endless loop, is hopeless. Listen, only Jesus saves because only Jesus can. And remember that verse says, the passage said that he saves to the uttermost. He doesn't kind of save. The Bible teaches us that once and for all, when Jesus died on our behalf, and when his righteousness is accredited to us, that we are forgiven from the penalty of sin, past, present, future, for eternity, the end, it's done. That's why Jesus said on the cross before he died, to tell us die, it is finished. Done. And now we get to walk by the power of his spirit where we are daily being given victory after victory. We don't have to be a slave to our sins anymore. And ultimately, when Jesus fulfills his promise to return, we will be removed from the very presence of sin. It will be quarantined from us and we will sin no more. Not based on our righteousness, but on imparted righteousness, accounted righteousness by Jesus himself. Jesus saves completely, you guys. My, my question is, who are you trusting in? We all need forgiveness. Let's just be real talk. We all need forgiveness. We all want, quote unquote, a second chance. But I'm telling you, because we're flawed at our core, a second chance is not going to do it. A one billionth chance is not going to do it. It's going to take a perfect savior to make a perfect sacrifice to make us Perfect in the eyes of God as he is perfect. Sinless. Um, 
So do you have sin? Do you need to be made whole? Of course we do. So the question is, what are, you, what are you relying on? Are you relying on an endless cycle, hopeless cycle of trying to do better? I'm going to do better. I'll try, I'm try, I'll try to do better. If, if reincarnation's true, then I'll try to do better. I won't know what my sins were from the past, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to do better. Or are you going to place your trust for the first time or maybe afresh today on the great, loving, perfect, final high priest whose name is Jesus. You really can do that. He really wants you to know him personally. He really, really loves you. He really, really wants you to be free.